Well, we're continuing on in uh, this book of 1 Corinthians in this portion that is rated PG-13. And we've been talking a lot about physical intimacy. And uh, uh, rather than saying physical intimacy all day, is everybody comfortable if I just say sex? Okay. And uh, that's, uh, that's, what we're, uh, that's what Paul's dealing with. So we, we dealt with the last week. You remember uh, Jordan gave an uh, unrestrained expression for his appreciation of this gift. But we're continuing on, and uh, uh, why? I think because outside of probably food and needing food, and if we're feeling safe, my sense is probably the strongest desire that's in us outside of those. That's one reason. The second reason particularly here is because the Corinthians have significant misconceptions about sex. Now, let's remember, this letter is written to a church. They're the first believers in that area. This is a pagan culture, pagan, 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 in terms of religious religion, in terms of sexual morality or immorality. This is a pagan culture. So the gospel's brand new there, and he's trying to unpack some things. But they got some wrong ideas. Jordan dealt with last week's text where there are some folks that are going, there's no limits on sex. I think very likely misunderstanding the gospel, what Paul references in Romans 6. Hey, we were enjoying this promiscuous, they didn't consider a promiscuous lifestyle. Now we got Jesus and we got saved and he forgives us so we can keep going doing whatever we want. How good is this gospel? And Paul's saying, no, that's not what grace looks like. Now you got some folks on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're saying a man and a woman shouldn't even enjoy physical intimacy. Not just single folks, but married folks. And it could be that they've misunderstood some things Paul has said earlier. We, we don't know exactly, but there, you got some going, anything is okay. And now you got some saying, no, if you love Christ, there shouldn't be sex at all. Now, that's the specific issue that Paul is dealing with in our text. So we're going to unpack this this morning. And what you'll notice from the text is Paul has not given us a 30,000 foot view of marriage. He's dealing with this particular issue. You're saying it would be better for even married couples not to enjoy physical intimacy. And that's the particular issue that Paul's wrestling with in this text. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, remember this is like last week, and you'll notice the quotes here. It's a conversation between Paul and the Corinthians. So he's now referencing what they're saying that he's now going to correct. This is not his view. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what some are saying in Corinth. Again, some are saying, do whatever you want. Others are saying, the church is having problems finding their way. It is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Now, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give, his, uh, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Father, we're talking about issues that are uh, pretty personal for all of us, one way or another. My prayer is that you will guide us through this discussion, and at the end of it, we will see your glory. Keep me true to what you inspired Paul to convey through these words. Lord, I'm going to do my best, but I need your Holy Spirit's help. So I ask for your guidance and your direction in my life and in everyone here. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So we got two big ideas here today that we're going to walk through. The first one, marriage is good. The second one, singleness is good. But let's start with marriage. Our desire for relationships, and I put intimacy in parentheses because some men get uncomfortable when you use the word intimacy, but that's what I mean, a connection, uh, a getting to know one another. Our desire for relationship is from God. I believe it's part of our being created in his image, the Trinity. We have this theological doctrine. Let's not underappreciate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are up there having a great time. I don't understand exactly how this works. There is one God with three persons, but God is having a great time being God. He, he's a relational being. We get our desire for relationships. I, I, I hope there are a bunch of things we could have learned in this last year. I think all kinds of things, but one of the things that almost everybody learned is how good it is to be with other people. Love the technology, love Zoom, love FaceTime, but being with people, if you're comfortable fist bumping, if you're even comfortable again, giving a hug again, how good does it be together? The elders and our spouses got together this last week, one evening in our backyard, the first time we've done something like that in over a year, and I'm just going to tell you, it was nice. It was good to be together. We arrive in the world as relational beings. I don't know if you've seen any of the studies, even for kids, babies that are born, if they're not held immediately by their mother, what it does physiologically to them. We arrive in this world looking for relationships, parents and brothers and sisters, cousins, nephews, uncles, whatever it be, friends, work associates. We were created to be in relationship, and this is from God. We all want to know others, and we all want to be known. Now, some folks, we usually refer to those as introverts, have a little less bandwidth for that. But everybody wants to know, folks. Now, marriage was designed by God to be a uniquely intimate relationship. Different than every other relationship. Go back to Genesis 2, and when we go back to creation and the biblical authors in the New Testament reference creation, that's a big deal. This is what they're saying. This is the way God designed us to be from the beginning. 
Moses wrote, after he's talked about the creation of Adam and Eve and putting them together, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, this was in a culture where your relationship with your parents was huge. Now, don't miss this. But you leave them because now your wife is more important. You've got a relationship with your wife that God designed to be more intimate than the relationship that you had with your parents. Now, you're still supposed to honor your mother and father, if you guys know the Pentateuch, all our lives, but that marriage relationship, that's special. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, there's a physical part of this, but I'm convinced Moses means more. He's talking about not just physical intimacy. He's talking about emotional and spiritual intimacy. They're intended to have a relationship in a way that nobody else has emotionally. A husband and wife are to share things about their heart that nobody else is privy to. Now, I've sometimes known folks where it maybe felt like to me they had stronger emotional context, uh, relationships with their friends than with their spouse. Not the way God designed it. Sometimes feels like to me in the church, spiritually, there's to be the spiritual relationship between a husband and a wife. Sometimes it's felt to me that some have a stronger spiritual connection with friends than with their spouse. Not the way God designed this to be. God designed this to be a relationship where a, a, a man and a woman, husband and wife, are joined emotionally, spiritually, and then physically. And this is primarily what our text is about. Paul dealing with that specific issue. Hey, even married folks shouldn't be doing this. And that's what he's correcting. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Now, we have to see this in the context. Paul's not given us the 30,000-foot view of marriage, Genesis 2.24, and he knew 2.24. He's dealing with that specific issue. God didn't primarily design marriage because men and women just couldn't control themselves. That wasn't the highest level. He's dealing with a specific issue now. But because of the temptation to sex, sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, what he said there about the mutuality of the relationship, guys, in the 2,000 years ago is groundbreaking. Notice this is groundbreaking. In a culture which was dominated completely by men, what he's saying here about women having some role in their mind, this is groundbreaking revolutionary stuff when it was first written. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here's where I'm going to go here, what Paul's saying. Husbands and wives should be attentive to one another's needs. Now, in this context, it's about physical intimacy. I believe the principle applies far broader. 
If we're married, there's nobody with whom we should have a stronger emotional relationship than our wife or our husband. If we're married, there's nobody with whom we should have a stronger spiritual connection than our spouse. And this physical connection, here's the way God ideally designed it. That a husband and wife would share dimensions of their life together that they would share with nobody else. That's the design. Now, we're living in a broken world, but that's the design. Attentive. And husbands and wives loving one another helps them fight temptation. Now, this is where I'm confident every man would like me to spend a few minutes developing this thought. But you see what Paul's saying there. We can help one another. No abuse. No force. When he talks about not owning, don't take that beyond. God designed marriage so that each individual, the husband and the wife, would be so filled up with Jesus that Jesus would spill out first and foremost to our spouse. And he would transform our joy so that rather than them looking to my spouse to meet my needs, God fills me with so much love, I'm there to meet theirs. So I look at even the area of physical intimacy, it seems to me generally men and women are designed differently. I'm not just talking the anatomy, but just even how they move to the place of desiring physical intimacy. Pondered it for a long time, and it feels like to me part of that reason, I understand there are exceptions to those general, is trying to encourage us again to meet the needs of our spouse. What's meaningful to them? How do I best love them? Now, marriage is designed to help us experience and express Christ's love, and I want to deal with this very quickly. Not what he's talking about in the text. He talks, I think, most about this in Ephesians 5. But it's a complementary relationship. This is where Paul is in Ephesians 5, given the 30,000-foot view. And he talks about marriage being a profound mystery. Now, he's talked about the roles of men and women in marriage. And, and then he, he gets to the, to, the, to the end of that context. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting Genesis 2.24, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Except he just talked about marriage. Now, this is what I think the profundity of the mystery that Paul's referencing here, and I wrestled with this for several years. Here's what I think he's saying is the profundity of the mystery. We would say, as Christians, Christ being the groom and the church being the bride, that is modeled after marriage. Because chronologically, in history, which came first, marriage or the church? Which came first? Marriage came first. Here's what I think Paul is saying, the profundity of the, 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 the mystery. And when I saw this, my view of marriage, my own marriage, changed pretty radically. Here's what I think Paul's saying. Though marriage came first in the church afterwards, God's a pretty smart guy. He actually designed marriage to be a place where we could experience and express 
the gospel of Christ. Though it came before Jesus in the church, this is a relationship where that intimacy spiritually ought to be enjoyed. And the way a husband and wife treat one another, live to one another, ought to be a beautiful, beautiful expression of the gospel. Now, we're living in a broken world. You all understand that, right? Doesn't always work that way. But there's God's design for what this relationship would be. And marriage ought to be a lifetime adventure with God. Now, God is good, and God is loving, and God is forgiving. So if your marriage doesn't meet the ideal, please do not leave here beating yourself up. Please don't do that. But God designed this to be a wonderful adventure. You guys have seen the statistics of Christians and how well they're doing with avoiding divorce? I have another concern for those who stay married and just settle. This is intended to be a lifetime adventure where we experience God's grace and express it through our relationship. Now, I'll end my talk talking about marriage here. It doesn't always feel like a gift. I've met some single people that it feels like to me they just think if they can just get married, all their problems will be solved. It's just the introduction to a whole different set of challenges. Man alive, it takes work. And if you've never been married, it takes more work than any other relationship in life. It ain't easy. Because even if we treasure Christ, you have two people who have still not been glorified, which means inevitably they're going to bring some shallowness and selfishness into the mix. This thing ain't easy. Now, I've shared with you before, and this is true. I grew up going to church. I've been through seminary. I went through premarital counseling. I was a pastor for about five years. And the reason I got married is, literally, I figured I had better odds of getting my needs met if there were two of us rather than just me trying to meet them. Guys, the power of Scripture. Now, again, I had access to all this, but if somebody had shared it with me, I hadn't seen it. Ephesians 5 changed my life. In Ephesians 5, when I had heard that preached, the emphasis was on wives submitting. I had not seen the part about husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church. For pity's sakes, nobody told me that. I got married so Julie could meet all my needs. I'm not kidding you. This is how bad it was. We were married about eight years before I finally wondered, how do my clothes get from the dirty hamper into my dresser drawer? My mother spoiled me. 
changed my view of marriage forever. Now, if Julie were here, she would assure you there's plenty of growth and room for me to advance in loving her like Christ loved a church. But I'm sitting there going, you think the bar's just a bit high? I'm supposed to love her like Jesus? How about just pick one of the other disciples like Peter who kept messing up? Love your wife like Peter. I'm more in the game. Marriage doesn't always feel like a gift, and anybody who's been married can tell you this is a lot, a lot of work. The key is stay focused on Jesus, and let's keep growing. If you've been divorced, go on with your life. God is good, and God is forgiving. Go on with your life. Don't go back and review the past. If you're married and you've settled, the great hopes you had on that wedding day have been vanquished. You're dealing with disappointment, but you're just going to live with it. Stop just living with it. Stop it. God intended this to be a great adventure. And Satan does not want us to enjoy this adventure with God at all. So he's going to make it hard. The hardest relational piece I know. It's also outside of Christ, the most joy producing. Marriage is good. Singleness is good. Singleness is good. So you understand, I know a bunch of married people that would absolutely go, singleness is good, and they would say, amen. Here's what Paul says. It's God's gift for some. Now, it's a concession, not a command. He's just saying here, I'm not commanding this. I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, single. But each has his own, what's that word there? Say it real loud again, all together on three. One, two, three. Each has his own gift. There's Paul's theology. There's Paul's theology. Each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, being married. One of another, being single. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Singleness is a gift in Paul's mind for some. And why is it a gift? It allows less hindered devotion to God. The gift I have received from God is to be married. It's a gift I cherish. Please don't misunderstand from my next comments in the next few minutes. Don't miss that. That's the gift I enjoy. 
Don't misunderstand me. Everybody promise? But I'm not alone that much. There's somebody else there. That communion with God, want to enjoy it with my wife, but then we had four kids. I'm just going to tell you, life got busy. It's a gift. I now have four kids and three in-law kids and nine grandchildren, and I spend a good deal of time every week on my phone on FaceTime. I love it. It's the gift God has given me. But it takes time. I believe in the gifts God has given me. It's the primary responsibility for relationships. And I love it. But it brings with it limitations. Singleness offers greater freedom for promoting the gospel. This is what I think Paul is talking about. He can travel, he can go wherever, and he's not limited by having to think about the responsibility he has for other lives. You know, I don't make many decisions without thinking about how this will affect my wife. I have fewer relationships with people outside my family because I have many within my family. Now, I think Paul is saying here, for those to whom God has given the gift, this is the advantage. This is the opportunity. My identity found in Christ, sharing the gospel, and I don't have some of the challenges that every married person could talk about. Part of the advantage in his mind, not commanding it, but talking about it being a gift. Now, here's my experience, and most of you know I'm old. Singleness doesn't feel like, to me, to most folks, it feels like a gift. Now, I have some friends that are choosing to be single, but it's not because they want the freedom to promote Christ. It's because they don't want to take the responsibility for having a spouse and kids. They'd just rather be single and selfishly use their time and money wherever they want. That's not the advantage Paul's talking about. Most of the single folks I know, it's not been easy to be single. Over the years, my heart has broken in lots of contexts. People fail in lots of things. But I've had lots of conversations with single people who would desire to experience marriage. Hard thing. They just haven't found the right person. But they'd like to. It's got to be 25 years ago. And I'd had several conversations with single folks, again, who desired to be married, just couldn't find the right person. It changed the way I viewed my marriage. I naively believed when I was young and married, once we were married for a while, we were going to stop disagreeing. There wouldn't be any more fights. 
it would just be harmonious every moment. We're 40 years into this thing, and we have yet to arrive at that state. Now, you understand that's mostly me, not my wife. But what it did do for me was change the way I viewed even our fights. Dealing with single folks who desired to be married. At least I got somebody to go home and fight with and bicker with. And it's a couple's culture. Those of us who are married, let's just not deny this. It's just the way it is. The American dream is to have a nice house, nice job, and a marriage. Not the biblical idea. Not the biblical idea. Paul's saying, I wish there were a lot of people like me. <laughs> this is a gift to be like me. Not for everybody. But we're a couple's culture now. Now, sometimes I think single people can feel it's more of a couple's culture than it actually is. And I've had conversations with folks that sometimes think they're being, it's awkward for them being with couples. And I would say from a couple standpoint, it's not necessarily awkward being with somebody single. We just don't look at it that way. So what's the solution for all of us? Keep focused on Jesus. Keep growing. Married, single. May our ultimate relationship be with Jesus. May the context of our peace and joy be with Jesus. Our identity should be found in Christ, not in our marital status. Lord, forgive us. And I'm talking about something internal here. All of us, married, single, wherever it is, where our identity is in our, our marital status more than who we are in Christ. Is there going to be marriage in heaven? I deal often with grieving spouses who have said goodbye to somebody. And this longing to be with that person in heaven. Now, I think we're going to know one another, and there's going to be a relational component we're going to share with one another. But mostly, I think this is what we're going to feel. Ah! Look at Jesus! Hey, nice to see you, Julie. Nice to be with you. Did you see Jesus? Whatever our marital status is, it's for this life. It ain't for the next. And if we're finding our identity primarily in our marital status, we need to spend more time looking at Jesus. Heaven's going to be great. Nobody's going to be care care about being not married. Nobody's going to care about playing golf. We're going to sit there and we're going to look at God and go, are you kidding me? 
I knew it was going to be extraordinary, but I didn't know my view was quite as small as it was when I looked back. More of that identity for all of us now. Single or married brings challenges the other does not have. I got married people that think singleness looks good. I got single people that think marriage looks good. Yep. 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 Wherever we are, let's accept the challenges that we have. Single or married brings opportunities the others does not have. Wherever we find ourselves, let's make use of those opportunities. And single or married, our greatest devotion is to growing in our relationship with Jesus and sharing his love. That's our life. And God is good. God is good. And I believe he never disappoints. When we're feeling disappointed by him, he's asking us, just look a little more clearly at me. I got a point in this. It's that you'd find, married or single, whatever your challenges, more of your identity in my goodness and love. So thanks for loving us, Father. Thanks for giving us gifts of different kinds. We pray that you would help us to treasure and trust you more wherever we are. You are good, but this life is hard. It is really hard. So our prayer is that you will work with us to see your goodness a little more clearly. You have lavished your love on us, Father. It is there. Give us eyes. Give us eyes just to see it more fully.